Several years ago, I was in Atlanta, Georgia for one of my best friend's bachelor parties. Now, before you go there, I'm a man of God. We didn't do anything, okay? Um, But I was in Atlanta, Georgia for one of my best friend's bachelor weekends. And the first stop on sort of the bachelor party weekend was we were going to go to an Atlanta Braves game. And if you know, if you're familiar with Atlanta at all, you know that their former stadium, Turner Field, was, is a downtown stadium. And so I wasn't familiar with that area, and I was driving around downtown Atlanta looking for a parking spot, looking for a free parking spot so I didn't have to pay the crazy prices. But I was driving around looking for a parking spot, and I was trying to get as close to the stadium as I could, and I was circling around and circling around all these blocks. And finally, I turned the corner, and I didn't find a parking spot but I found something even more amazing. This is what I found. Next slide, please. That is the name of the church. (laughs) The name of the church, I see it as I'm sitting at a red light, is called The Perfect Church. This is not a joke, okay? I even checked their Facebook page this week. They have a five-star rating, so that's only one review, and it's the pastor, but... (laughs) perfect rating so far it's funny on their Facebook page you know all these random people have found it and they comment on it and have a good time with it one person said so if the Salvation Army's motto is doing the most good the perfect church's motto must be doing the precisely correct amount of good (laughs) but I just remember seeing this and pulling out my phone and having to take a picture the perfect church And believe it or not, outside of Syracuse, there's a church called the Imperfect Baptist Church. Imperfect church, perfect church. What is it? Why do we laugh at this? Because our experience tells us that there is no church that is perfect. (laughs) There's no church that is perfect. And how presumptuous of it is it to stick the perfect church on your building? You know it's true. I know it's true. There is no such thing as a perfect church. And sometimes, many of you know this because you've experienced perhaps pain at the hands of a church or church leaders. I've had that experience at times in my life. Or sometimes it's something more or less harmless and you're like, I know the church isn't perfect because it drives me crazy. The sermons are too long. There's that part of the service where we have to stand up and shake everybody's hand and greet everybody. I don't like that part either, but we do it, right? Because you need, it says in the Bible, greet one another. But there are things about church you're like, that's not, that's not what I love. That's not what I want. We know these things aren't per- In C.S. Lewis's book, The Screwtape Letters, in the book he writes from the perspective of a demon trying to destroy a particular Christian's faith. And the demon wants to convince the patient, that's the name of the Christian he's trying to derail. He says he's trying to convince the patient that he doesn't need to be a part of a church. And trying to convince him to not be a part of the church. And he says, what you do to convince somebody to not be a part of God's people is make the Christian, make the patient notice everyone around them's quirks. Let them notice that their neighbors are singing out of tune. Or that their boots squeak. Or that they have double chins. Or odd noses. Or they talk too loud. Convince the patient that he or she doesn't belong with these sort of people. Let them see that the church is far from perfect. And they'll give up on it. I've been in ministry for nearly a decade. And I know probably better than any of you 
just how imperfect the church can be. I'm up close and personal in the junk of church people often. But I know very well, and you know very well, that every church on this planet has quirks, has conflicts, has sin issues among its members and its leaders. But in spite of all of this, and I've been in a lot of churches, and I've seen some things done in Jesus' name that are just hurtful. And I've been a part of churches that are just awkward and kind of weird. But in spite of all of that, I refuse to give up on the church. And I don't think you should either. We are in a teaching series on what it means to be a church family. And the reality is, is when you use the word family, we all, it brings up a lot of different images for all of us because families are complicated. Families are messy. They are imperfect. And church families are no different. But the church... The church, even though it's messy, even though it's imperfect, is God's gift to us. He's, given, he's a good father who's given us good gifts. And the gift of the church is to help us know others and be known by others. The gift of the church is for us a place for us to find care and friendship and healing and family. It's a place for us to experience worship and growth and teaching and singing and study It's a place for us where we can come and confess and repent and receive the Lord's table together, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. The church is not perfect, and this church is not perfect, but it is infinitely beautiful. And so if you have your Bible, look at Ephesians chapter 2. And back in October, we we had a series of meetings called Building a Common Vision, And the purpose of these meetings was to get everyone in the church around tables and have these discussions about who we are as a church, what we want to be, what we're about, what we're passionate about, where we're headed. And the end result was, after we sort of hash it out all together and have all these discussions, that in the end, a mission statement would be in place. That we would, as a church, collectively agree what our mission is. And we all agreed, as a church, that our mission is, as a church, the purpose of our existence is to know Christ through the Scriptures, grow together as a family, and go into the world to make disciples of Jesus. And this piece, growing together as a family. Very early on in the conversations, we started focusing on relationships. She said, well, the church is a place where there's got to be relationships. It's a place where people ought to know one another, a place where people ought to be known. And so the question then was, well, what kind of language do we use as a church? Do we say we're a body? Do we say we're a community? Do we say we're a family? And, every, and around the table, we're debating all these words, and we're trying to figure out what is the word we want. And each word has its upsides and its downsides and its connotations and its sort of baggage with it. And it, it made me go on a several-month-long study of all the words that the Scripture uses about the church. And I started studying all the metaphors that the New Testament authors say of the church. What is the church? How does it function? Where is it headed? And in the book of Ephesians, Paul uses at, at least five metaphors. I'm going to share four and then the other one today. He, in the book of Ephesians, the Apostle Paul gives four metaphors for the church. And I want us to look at these. I want us to look at four completely different texts. So we'll have like four miniature sermons today rather than just one text that we're zeroing in on. But four different metaphors. And what you'll find is that each one of these metaphors indicates that on this earth, the church is imperfect. But through the work of Jesus, it is being fashioned into something beautiful. 
something that one day will indeed be perfect. And so let's look at these metaphors. Here's the first one. The first is the metaphor of a body. The church is a body. Look what it says in Ephesians. We're gonna, this one's chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It says, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The scripture says that the church is a body. The church is a body and Jesus Christ is the head. He's the brain. He is the, he's the head of the body. Each of us then, with our unique personalities, our unique talents, our unique gifts and resources and experiences... We all make up a different part of the body. We play a unique role and a unique purpose in the body of Christ. And I love this because it means that every single one of you in this room is valuable to the work that God is doing in this church. Every single one of you. We all play a unique and specific role in God's church. And even if your role feels minor, the scripture says that it's crucial for the health of the body of Christ, for the health of the church. I've heard it said that if you were to lose your pinky toe, you would have to relearn how to walk. And I googled this this week to see if that it was indeed true because I didn't want to, um, you know, get up here and tell you something wrong. And I found that Dr. Win Jae Sung says we walk in a tripod-like fashion, where the big toe knuckle, the pinky toe knuckle, and the heel have a tripod walking ability. If you remove one part of that tripod, you lose balance. So even though the pinky toe itself has no seemingly functional value, removing the metatarsal would make running, walking, and skipping nearly impossible. The pinky toe. Some of you go, oh, I hate the life that God has given me or the gifts that God has given me. I'm just a pinky toe. Without you, we can't run. Without you, we can't skip. And without you, we can't walk with God the way he's called us to walk. And here's the reality, though. Bodies are imperfect. Many of you know this. Many of you have, you notice all the imperfections of your own body. But the church body is no different than our own physical bodies. We, it has imperfections. We as a church have imperfections, just like any other church. But as you grow as a human, every stage of growth has its imperfections, has its messiness, has its awkwardness. And so does a church right? And I think about like our bodies just as they change throughout life. My five-month-old just started eating baby food. It's really, it's cute, but it's really messy, right? She's in that stage of life where she can't quite hold it down, and she, my, if you've ever seen my little daughter, she like smiles all the time, and she has these really fat cheeks that are really cute, and she smiles while she's eating. She's like, these pureed carrots are so good. She's so happy, and they're just like running down her face. It's disgusting. It's messy, my three-year-old, on the other hand, is in that stage of life where she plays hard. She's like a wrecking ball. But she doesn't really know how to clean her room very well yet, you know? And so her room is messy. She's in a stage of life that's just kind of messy. Or if you think of how a body actually progresses, you think of walking. Think of all the weird, awkward stages and painful stages you have to go through as a child to learn how to walk. You first start by sitting up. It's the first step in being able to walk, being able to sit up. My little five-month-old, she's almost there. Then you start crawling. 
And then, then eventually you kind of start, what do they call it, gliding around, around the couch. And you, you kind of do that a little bit. And then one day you let go. And you start, they say that walking is just like controlled falling. And if you've ever seen a baby walk, that's exactly what it is. They're just stumbling and it's awkward and it's weird. And it's like, it's just a mess. And they're stumbling all over the place. They fall all over the place. But then eventually they start to walk well. They get strong. Their muscles progress and they walk well. And then eventually you are able to run. And then eventually you're able to jump. So your body progresses and you go from infancy to toddlerhood to adolescence to puberty to adulthood. And every stage has its own messes, its own awkwardness, its own imperfections, and its own growing pains. But given proper nutrition, proper exercise, proper discipline, our bodies mature into what we're becoming. And this is the hope of the church. That Jesus is our head and he controls his church. And though we will stumble and fall at times... We are always growing into maturity. It says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. So Paul has no misconception that we're already perfect. He says we're growing up. The church is growing up. We're becoming what God has called us to be. We're a body. Second metaphor is church is a family. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We looked at the idea of church as family in depth last week, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time here. But the truth is, families are complicated. You know this, I know this. It's Father's Day. This day is supposed to be a day of celebration, but you're still probably going to get in a fight trying to pick you know, where to eat today. The kids aren't going to like it. Your wife's not going to like it. You're like, this is my day. Just one day. Let me have it. <laughs> Families are complicated. And ideally, and I know very few people in this life experience the ideal. I get that on this earth. But ideally, as the years go by in a family, the family grows closer as they share more experience together, as each person matures. See, the church likewise, they're in, in the church likewise, there'll be conflicts There's going to be relational strain. But through shared experience and through common vision and mission, God will, Lord willing, bring us into greater unity and greater maturity. We'll mature as a family. And there's coming a day in eternity where we will look at one another truly as a family. Not in the metaphorical sense, but in the sense that you are my brother, you are my sister, and God is our Father, and together every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, skin color, language, background, socioeconomic level, we will all be level on the ground with God as our Father, and our faces will be uh, on the ground, and we'll be saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty, the earth is filled with His glory. We'll be a family. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. called this, and he longed for this, he called it the beloved family that he longed for. Church is a family. Another thing the church is, and stick with me here, the church is a building. (laughs) Ephesians 2. In whom, Jesus, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 1 Peter 2. This is an additional text. As you come to Him, Jesus, the living stone who is rejected by men, but in the sight of God He was chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house. You'll often hear me say, because we meet in a temporary location every week, that I'll say, the church is not a building, it's a people. 
Well, the New Testament says, well, actually, it's kind of like a building. (laughs) The metaphor in this sense is that Jesus is the foundation, but God is using each of us like bricks and mortar to build his spiritual house, to build his church. Maybe you've walked around a construction site, or maybe you just, you go down downtown Brooklyn right now, and there's condos going up everywhere, everywhere. Condos all over the place. And if you were able to get in and walk around that construction site, you would know that there's rubble everywhere. There's dust on the ground, there's sawdust on the floor from them making everything, there's rebar and concrete pillars sticking up out of the ground every which way, and it's like, it's a mess. And you're looking at all this construction and you're like, what is this? What's going on? There's construction workers scattering all over the place. What's happening? Like, what is this going to look like? And I mean, what, think of what people say when they walk past a building being constructed. They say, hey, I wonder what that's going to be. I do that all the time when there's a storefront being renovated. I'm like, I wonder what that's going to be. Hopefully it's not another hookah bar. We got enough of those. <laughs> so true. Um, sorry. <laughs> but we go, what, what is that? I wonder what that's going to be. I wonder what that's going to be. We're all confused by the chaos. But if you ask the builders, if you ask the architect, they, all, they know exactly what it's going to be. And they know that while it looks really messy right now, the mess actually serves a purpose. The reason that rebar is sticking up out of the middle of the ground is there's something that's going to be built around that. And the reason that pillar is there because it's going to be a load-bearing pillar that sets the next floor or the next thing. And they can, the architect and the builders, they can see the bigger picture. They can see what's going on. And they go, it's unfinished. It looks like a mess right now. But just wait, this thing is going to be beautiful. Unless it's those ugly condos in Williamsburg that kind of ruin the look of the neighborhood. And when it comes to the church, Jesus is the chief architect. Jesus is the chief builder. Jesus told his disciples, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I'm going to build it. And it's going to look like a mess sometimes. And the church is going to make some big mistakes. The people of God are going to do some dumb things in the name of God at times. And churches are going to hurt people and leaders are going to, their egos are going to take over. And there's going to be all these things that just you wish didn't happen. But Jesus goes, in the midst of all the mess, I'm building my church. And the gates of Hades aren't going to overcome it. I'm building my church. See, the church is a building project. It's incomplete at the moment. It's imperfect, but it's on its way to being something beautiful. And we want to be a part of that as God builds it. The church is a building. The church is a work of art. Ephesians chapter 2, we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Jesus is in the middle of working on us as individuals, as, part, as, as a church. He's working on us. We're in the middle of the process None of us, nobody in this room is fully spiritually mature yet. We're all growing. God is shaping and fashioning each one of of us. And as a result, that means that the church is not everything it's going to be. Because we're not everything we're going to be. People say the church is imperfect. I'm like, yeah, you bring a bunch of imperfect people into a community. What makes you think it's going to be perfect? It's a bunch of sinners, by God's grace, striving to be more like Jesus but we're still sinners. My neighbor 
is a relatively famous artist. I found this out after Googling him one time. I was like, this is a cool guy. I should see what he's up to. And then it's like, he's the man. But we become really good friends. And uh, I'll say to him sometimes, I'll say, you know, hey, what are you working on right now? And he'll tell me, I've got this project and I'm doing this, I'm doing that, I'm doing that. I'll say, hey, can I see it? Can I come upstairs and see it? And he's like, no, 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 it's not ready yet. And I, I do some writing sometimes and he knows I'm a writer. And he's like, would you let me see the rough draft of whatever you're working on right now? I said, no. <laughs> See, artists, Vanessa knows, she's laughing, Uh, James knows, he's got an album he's working on, and we can't hear it yet, it's not ready yet, it's in the middle. But see, artists often don't want the world to see their art until it's a finished product. See, they know it's a work in progress, and they don't want to show it off until it's ready, but the church is not like this. We are Jesus' workmanship, his work of art, but he's showing the world his process, He's letting the world see what He's doing with imperfect people, what looks like a mess. He's slowly chiseling away at the mess, and in the end, He's going to create something absolutely perfect and absolutely beautiful. And it's, it's a lot of fun to watch an artist in progress, if you've ever had a chance to do it. Just this weekend, I was at Coney Island, and I was watching the spray paint guys. Have you seen these guys? Where they spray paint and like they'll spray, it's like it's just a white board and they like spray paint on it and then they like wipe some away with a cloth and then they like take a like stencil and they spray something they do this and they that and it like it looks like a mess literally up until like the last moment when they like they wipe it I mean and it's like oh it's a like Darth Vader or whatever it is. You know, it's Coney Island. It's kind of kitschy stuff. But nevertheless, you're like, what is this weird thing that he's working on? And he's smearing it all over the place. And then all of a sudden you look at it and you go, oh, that's, you know, the boardwalk or whatever on this little painting. And it's fascinating to watch that process. It's fascinating to watch that process. And that's what God is doing with us. We are the tools. We are the paint. We are the clay. We're being sculpted and shaped by God. And our role is to submit to His work. Be moldable. As we submit to Him, He forms us into His image. And you get a group of people who are submitted to Him. He forms each of us into His image, and our church matures as we each mature. That's the four metaphors. Body, family, building, and art. And it shows us this. I heard a pastor by the name of Dave Lomas say, Jesus doesn't find us beautiful, He makes us beautiful. Or to put another way, Jesus doesn't find His church perfect. He makes His church perfect. Philippians 1.6 says, And being sure of this, that He who began a good work in you, in crossroads, will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. In 1998, God started this church. And I wasn't here then. But many of you can attend. Many of you were. And many of you can attest that the last 20 years has been a journey with a lot of beautiful moments, a lot of painful moments, a lot of growing pains, a lot of imperfect people. And I look at this church and I'm looking, I'm like, I'm looking at all the ways God has grown us and is growing us and shaping us and fashioning us. And I go, we still have such a long way to go. But isn't it amazing what God has done and is doing? Isn't it amazing? There are are many of you who came to Christ in this church, were baptized in this church. Ryan and Andrea are going to baptize their son in this church this afternoon. Isn't that amazing? That God is building His church through us right here in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. 
Are we perfect? Not a chance. But God is doing incredible things through imperfect people, and I'm grateful to be a part of it. And so you say, well, so what? Okay, body, family, building, art, metaphors. That's cool. So what? What do I, what do, I do with this? I'll give you two ways you can put this into practice as a member of this church. First is if you notice an area of growth within the church, don't leave, don't complain, help build it. We're a church in progress. Everything's not perfect. But if you see an area that needs to be grown and built up, don't complain about it, don't leave, but rather help to build that area of our church. In the past, at other churches, not this one, of course, I've had people in churches approach me or other church leaders and they say, this church is not doing anything in this area or we're not doing this well or we need to grow here or we need to grow there. And I might say, that's a great thought. You know, I've noticed that too. And you seem very passionate and you seem like you have a lot of really good ideas. Would you want to help build up that area? And they say, no, not really. I was hoping you would do it. <laughs> that's not what we do as, body, as members of the body of Christ. On the other hand, I've seen countless times, especially in this church, where people see a need, they recognize their gifts, and they pull up their sleeves and they get to work seeing to it that our church matures in a particular area. And it's a beautiful thing. Andrea Holmes, some of you guys know, I didn't tell her I was going to bring her up. Many of you guys know Andrea. I met Andrea about a year and a half, maybe two years ago. I was speaking at a college event. And she was a college student at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And she was in the crowd after the, and I was telling them about, I was telling all these college students about the work we're doing in New York and everything. And after this, after the conference, she comes up to me and starts talking and she's like, tell me about New York and tell me about this and that. And what's New York like? And I said, you know what? You should move here and be a part of our church. <laughs> I said, you should move. She was like, I would love to live in New York one day. And I said, you should move here and come join what God is doing at Crossroads. And I just kind of said it jokingly. And then like a few weeks later, I get an email from her and she's like, hey, I'm thinking about applying for jobs in New York. Are you serious that I could come and like be a part of your church? And I was like, yeah, definitely. That would be amazing. And so we scheduled a Skype conversation. We were talking on FaceTime and I said, Andre, here's what I need you to know. This was two years ago. Okay. So I said, Andre, here's what I need you to know about our church. Our ch church is not that young. At the time, our church wasn't very young. I might have been like the Mueller's and me might have been the youngest people in the congregation other than like the kids. And I said, we're not that young of a church. We don't have a lot of people your age. And I said, so we're not like the cool, hip, trendy church for 22-year-olds. And I said, so I said, you know, just be aware of that coming in. And she said, oh, okay, perfect. And she came. And she knew that this wasn't necessarily a church for her. But she started coming here. And she started serving in all these areas. But then finally, she looked around. And she was like, you know, there are actually a lot of people my age are starting to come. But we don't have a ministry area for people my age. And she said, do you mind if I start a growth group for young professionals? I said, go for it. She started it. And I think at the current moment, it's one of the most thriving things we have in our church. Like there's this group text and they let me be on it. Uh, I think it's like no kids allowed, but I got to be on it because I'm, <laughs> but I, and the, like, it's amazing. Like it's, it's people in our church always hanging out, like young professionals going, hey, we're hanging out at Smorgasburg this weekend. Hey, we're doing a movie in the park. Hey, we're doing this. Hey, we're doing that. And there's this thriving area of ministry in the church, not because me, the pastor or the elders or anybody said, hey, we need to start a young professionals ministry. Because a young professional said, hey, there's a need. I think I've got the passion. I think I've got the bandwidth. And I think I've got the people around me to start this ministry. She started it, and it's an awesome thing.
And more and more young professionals are beginning to be a part of our church, as you can see. So if you see an area that needs to be built up, build it up. God has given you that ability to see and that desire to see that thing grow for a purpose and for a reason. He's given you that vision so that you can help build that vision. Second thing I'll say is this. Be patient with others. See, in this church, there are people of all levels of spiritual maturity. Some of us have been walking with Jesus for years. Others of you are very young Christians. Some people are very morally put together. You say the right things, do the right things, dress the right way. You don't make any big public mistakes, visible Others of us in this room have a lot of sin struggles in our present and in our past that slow us down sometimes. Some people in here, you know the Bible and theology very, very well. Others of you, if I told you to turn to Lamentations, would have to go to the table of contents. It's okay, I would too. Some people are socially aware. Some people can be socially awkward. That's just reality. And if you're like, there's nobody socially awkward in our church. Yes, there are. I'm kidding. I'm joking. All right. We're different, right? We're all different. This church is a group of people all over the map. And my favorite thing about this church is our diversity. Not just ethnic diversity, not just socioeconomic diversity, not just political diversity, not just, I mean, I love it all. We are a diverse church, but diversity is painful. It can slow us down. And if, we're, if we are all alike, we could all move at the same speed. Like if we were all just alike, we could go full speed ahead and do what we wanted to do. But we're not, so we have to wait for others. There are often racial conversations that have to happen within our church. We sometimes hurt one another in the way that we talk about things. And we've got to heal before we can move on. There are sometimes socioeconomic differences in our church. And we've got to think about those things before we make purchases or we make decisions. There are theologically diverse people in this church. And so there are times we've got to to slow down and get consensus before we move in an area. And that can be painful. It can be frustrating. But we wait for one another so that we can go at the same speed so that we can go together. My brother is here in the room, and my brother is nine years younger than me. And when we were kids, that means we didn't really have, any, have much in common. I was eight, nine years old when he was born. So there wasn't much we could do together, right? Like I'm, a, you know, in adolescence, and he's an infant. But we early on developed a bond um, at first, our, but we've developed a bond, and we're very close now. But at first, our relationship was so, there was so much disparity between a nine-year-old and an infant that all we really could do was practice WWF wrestling moves on my bed with him getting powerbombed over and over and over again. It's true. We even did, like, the entrances and stuff like that through the door. It was cool. But as he got older, I kind of became, like, a big brother, kind of, like, Sage, I offered advice. And so we had a lot of the same hobbies growing up. And so he would say, hey, Will, tell me about this. Tell me about this. Help me navigate this. And it became sort of a a counseling relationship. And that maturity gap that was evident early on has now disappeared. And I've watched as my brother has gone through college. He's gone through grad school. He's now moved to the city and he's working. And now we sit down and we have a meal together and there's no disparity. Like we're friends and I learn as much from him as he learns from me. But it took 24 years of work to get there. Now imagine if when I was nine, I said, you know what? He can't play video games. All he does is spit up. All he does is poop. He can't play with me. He can't throw the baseball with me. We can't have a conversation. I don't want a relationship with him. You see this happen with kids sometimes. 
And what if I had said, we're not going to have a relationship because there's nothing I can really do as a nine-year-old with my little infant brother? I wouldn't experience the blessing of the friendship that we have today if we hadn't put in the work for 24 years. And it's like this in the church sometimes. There are people in the church that are spiritually younger than you, spiritually less mature than you. And if they're in your Bible study or your small group, they will ask questions that slow your small group down. And they will ask things that you think are so elementary, but they're still trying to figure it out. And eventually, but what often happens sometimes is people go, you know what, this small group isn't for me. These people are so dumb. I need, to go to a, I need to go to a church where I can get fed better. You know what I think God's calling you to do? To feed. To feed the others. Because here's, what, here's what's, what happens. It's called discipleship in a church. When mature Christians look at younger, younger Christians and instead of getting impatient with them, they invest in them. They help them learn to read their Bible. They help them learn to be generous with their time. Older men come around younger men and teach them to be godly fathers. Older women come around younger women and teach them to be godly mothers and wives and all of this. And we grow up and by God's grace, eventually, the person who's discipling and mentoring someone, eventually that relationship becomes level and we're blessing one another. Be patient with one another. Don't bail on the church because you're the most impressive person here. That's maybe why God put you here, so that you can invest in people, so that, that we can grow up into maturity. Body, family, building, work of art. But there's one more metaphor in the scriptures, and that is that the church is Jesus' bride, which tells us this, the church belongs to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives. How? It's Father's Day. Men, love your wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the Word, so that He might present the church to Himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. It says two things here in Ephesians 5. Jesus loves His church. He gave himself up for us and he died. That's three things, sorry. And he died so that we could live. He suffered the sting of rejection so that we could experience the fullness of love. And this is a theme that is evident all throughout the Bible. God chooses to bond himself with imperfect people, people that will hurt him and disappoint him. He did it with the people of Israel. He chose them to be his chosen people, but they continued to break his heart. They continued to rebel against him, but his love was constant. He never gave up. The prophet Hosea married a prostitute. And God told him beforehand, and said, she's going to continually cheat on you, but I want you to marry her anyway. And that is a metaphor. It actually happened, but it's also a metaphor for God. He is the perfect groom. And we are an adulterous bride. Yet he married us anyway. And we continue to cheat on him with the things of the world, with our thoughts, with our minds, with our attitudes, our actions. But he stays committed to us because we are his church. We are his bride. He saved us knowing that we would continually sin against him. And we are unfaithful all the time, but he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Second thing that this passage tells us is that he will sanctify his church 
He will cleanse her by the washing of His Word. Why? So that He can present the church to Himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we, the church, might be holy and without blemish. It says He's making us perfect. He's not giving up on us. He will not give up on the church and He will not give up on our church. We are not the perfect church like the one in Atlanta. That would be way too high a view of ourselves. But listen, we're, not, we're also not the imperfect Baptist church like in Syracuse. That would be way too low a view of God. We are the not yet perfect church. Not yet perfect church. We're a work in progress. But we are His workmanship. And He's forming us into the image of Himself. He's building His church and it can be confusing and chaotic at times, but the end result will be perfect. Like I said before, the end result will be a every tribe, tongue, nation, and language around a throne on our faces, all injustice erased. Justice has been declared. Justice has been fulfilled. Tears have been wiped away. Our sin has been removed. Our joy is complete. And we are all together in hundreds of languages and thousands of dialects, as one family, the people of God, the holy church that is now perfect, we will sing, holy, holy, holy. The earth is filled with Jesus' glory. We are Jesus' not yet perfect church. But praise God, that day is coming. Pray with me. God, we thank You for...